Okay, we will dismiss our kids to Praiseville, kindergarten through third grade. You can make your way to the back where Miss Orlando and Mr. Niqua are. For the rest of us, you can open up to Genesis chapter 32. And parents, just as a, as a reminder, if you've got a, a, a young child with you who starts to get a little bit fidgety, we're, we're okay with that. We roll with it. It's fine. We love kids. But if you uh, feel like you need to get them uh, to another room or another environment, we've got a live stream of the service going right across the way in our uh, Peacock Hall. One of the guys in the vestibule area can show you where that is. No pressure, just letting you know. Genesis chapter 32. There's a, let me say up front, there's a little bit of uh, back and forth as to whether or not all of chapter 32 should be taken together or whether 32, 1 through 21 is one unit and then 22 through the end of the chapter is another unit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take chapter 32 in two parts, um, not necessarily because that's the right way, just the way we're going to do it today. So you follow along with me as I read, and as we read, Again, be mindful of the fact what you want to be looking at and listening to in this reading is the conflict that Jacob is encountering and how God is working for Jacob in the midst of this time of testing and trial and what Jacob's response is in return. So Genesis chapter 32, verse 1. Now as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. Jacob said when he saw them, this is God's camp. So he named that place Mahanaim. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He also commanded them, saying, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my lord that I may find favor in your sight. The messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and furthermore, he's coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he divided the people who were with him, and the flocks, and the herds, and the camels, into two companies. For he said, If Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown your servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he will come and attack me and the mothers with the children. For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. So he spent the night there. Then he selected from what he had with him a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He delivered them into the hand of his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on before me and put a space between the droves. He commanded the one in front, saying, when my brother Esau meets you and asks you, saying, to whom do you belong and where are you going and to whom do these animals in front of you belong, then you will say, these belong to your servant Jacob. It is a present sent to my lord Esau, and behold, he also is behind us. Then he commanded also the second and the third, and all those who followed the drove, saying, After this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, Behold, your servant Jacob is also behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. Then afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on before him while he himself spent that night in the camp. 
This is the word of the Lord to us. Let's pray. Father, in a life that is full of difficulty and trial and enemies, both seen and unseen, we ask that you would give us greater assurance this morning that greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. That Christ himself, by death and resurrection and in his ascension, sits ruling and reigning even now over all earthly powers. We do not need to fear. Thank you that you are with us wherever we go, wherever we find ourselves. That our lack of sensibility to that in no way diminishes your presence or your power. Thank you for your faithfulness to your people. Amen. God's people are secure in his presence and with his promises. That's sort of, if we're going to try to encapsulate what's going on in this passage of scripture, that's what we're going to try to drive home. That God's people are secure in his presence and with his promises. So as we look at the way that this works itself out in this passage... Let me tell you uh, two, and if we have time, three steps that we're going to take uh, to support that idea. Uh, number one, related to God's presence, uh, as we look and we see what happens here with Jacob uh, and what this passage then says to us, more than just a lesson in history, we want to draw from what we read here and we want to challenge ourselves to know or to be aware of God's presence with us. Jacob, in the outset of this passage, is made aware of the fact that God is with him before Jacob even knows what he's going to encounter. Second, we want to pray God's promises. This is one of the, uh, for Jacob, who is a bit of a mixed bag. He's a complicated man, to say the least. This is one of the few bright, shiny moments in the story of Jacob, this prayer that he offers up in verses 9 through 12. So we want to know God's presence. We want to pray his promises. And then third, if we have time to get to it, the latter part of the passage, we want to practice what we pray. We want to practice what we pray. All right, first a little background. Last week we were in chapters 29 and 30. And in 29 and 30, we were on the front end of Jacob's time of exile outside of the promised land because of the the hostility that Esau had for Jacob because Jacob had tricked their father into giving him the blessing rather than to Esau. The divisions that were already there in the family were only ratcheted up. Esau swore to himself, as soon as dad dies, I'm going to kill my brother for what he's done. And Jacob, at the urging of his mother, flees the promised land to go to in-laws who are a ways away, hundreds and hundreds of miles away. Jacob goes into a time of exile, and he goes into a time of exile to live with his uncle Laban for an undetermined amount of time. And in the story, what we find from chapters 29 all the way up to where we are here in chapter 32, Jacob even makes reference to it in his prayer. Jacob enters into his time of exile with absolutely nothing. Just a man and his staff. If you go back and if you read, say, from chapters 29 up to 32, you find out that by the time we get to chapter 32, where we are now, About 20 years has elapsed. So Jacob arrives having nothing but a walking stick. And in 20 years time, he now is leaving Laban to return home, having not one but two wives. Again, not that we recommend that. Having not one but two wives, having 11 sons, having multiple servants, and having hundreds and hundreds of head of livestock. He's done well for himself. And what we tried to impress upon uh, our minds last week was in looking at the fact that both in discipline, God purifying, correcting, refining Jacob for his deceitfulness, 
He reaps what he sows. The deceiver becomes the deceived. Both in discipline and in the chaos and misery that comes in what we would only describe as something of a dysfunctional family that Jacob begins to have. In all of those things that look so distasteful to us, God is nevertheless working all of these things out for Jacob's good. He's blessing him. Everything that God said he would do for Jacob, he's doing. And so at this particular point in time, we've, we've skipped over a couple chapters. God, after about 20 years, comes to Jacob and says, okay, Jacob, now it's time to leave Laban and to go home. He's going to return to the promised land. The difficulty, though, is that although Jacob is going to be now bringing his years of exile to an end and returning to the land of promise, he can put the Laban years behind him, hard, distasteful, abusive Laban. But of course, now Jacob has to face the very reason that he had to go into exile in the first place, which is he's got a brother that is bent on killing him. And that situation has not been resolved. It's been sitting, as far as Jacob is concerned, sitting and festering for 20 years. You ever let a grudge fester? Does it tend to diminish or deepen? All right, mine deepen. You other saints out here, I don't know how you handle yours. Mine deepen, right? If, they, if they're not dealt with, they only get more problematic. 20 years of silence between the two brothers. And Jacob now must know and recognize that he's got to deal with the elephant in the room. He's got to deal with Esau. And so here's where we pick up then. 32, 1 and 2. As Jacob went on his way, this is not an aimless way that Jacob is going. As Jacob went on his way, you can read parenthetically, as Jacob went on his way to the promised land, back home, where God told him to go. As Jacob went on his way, where God told him to go, the angels of God met him. Jacob said when he saw them, this is God's camp. So he named that place Manaim, which means something like two camps. That's it. Two verses, this spectacular vision that Jacob gets is mentioned, and then it's dropped and it goes on with the rest of the story. Let me, let me try to point out to us what I think is going on here, its relevance for Jacob, and then also try to say why this is relevant for us as well. In, in, in several ways that we won't get into right now, this is almost a mirror reflection or a counterpart, we could say, to the vision that Jacob has in Bethel all the way back in Genesis 28. Remember in Genesis 28, Jacob is on his way out of the land, and at night he has a vision of a ladder that is connecting heaven and earth with angels ascending and descending, the angels of God. The same phrase is used in 28 and here in 32. And that vision was given to assure Jacob of God's promise to be with him and to protect him and to keep him wherever he went. Jacob, when you leave the land, that doesn't mean that you're leaving me. I'm not bound to any one time or place. Wherever you go, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to fulfill all of my promises to you as I protect you and keep you. Now, he's on his way back to the land and he gets something very similar. He gets another vision of angels, the angels of God, this time, though, slightly different, he sees the angels of God camped out, so to speak, along with him. That's probably where the idea of two camps come from. Jacob has his camp, and his eyes are open to see, lo and behold, it's not just me and mine who are here, but it's God and his angels who are camped next to me. Which is given to Jacob, then, as another sign that in whatever Jacob is about to encounter on his way back to the land, God is with him. God is protecting him. So notice the way that this plays out. In Genesis 28, a vision of the angels of God who are with Jacob because God is with him as a way to say, Jacob, on your way out of the promised land, here's the promise that I'm going to give to you. I will be with you and I will keep my word. 
on his way back, now God has fulfilled part of that promise to make him prosperous, to secure him, to protect him. And he's bringing him back to say, and now that you're about to go back into the land, after I have fulfilled this part of my word to you, I am still with you every step of the way. The point here then is that if Jacob represents God's people in the Old Testament, the people who would later become Israel, Israel ought to see something about the way that God cares for them in the way that he cares for Jacob. And then taking it one step further, because of our union with Christ, because we have been made the people of God, because of the death and resurrection of Christ, because of faith in him, we can look at the way that God handles and treats Jacob to say, well, what God does for his people there is also something like what God does for his people here. In other words, this is not just an empty history lesson where we're getting some far-out vision that we can gawk at. Paul says in Romans 15, verse 4, you don't need to turn there right now, but Paul says in Romans 15, 4, that the things that were written previously, he's talking about the Old Testament, they were written for our instruction so that through endurance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Do you hear that? So if you ask Paul, Paul, what in the world is going on in Genesis 32, 1 and 2? Paul would say, God gave you that passage so that you could be encouraged on your travels through this life to know that God has not abandoned you and that whether you see him or not, he is all the more present with you in all of the challenges that you face, even challenges that you don't know you're about to encounter. Now, here's the temptation. The temptation is to read a couple verses like this, and you read and you wistfully think, oh, that Jacob, he had it so good. If only I had a vision like that. If only I could see when I put my head on the pillow at night, an angel or two in a cot next to the bed. I would be able to rest at night without any worry or fear about what the night would bring or what the day had in store when the sun rose. Oh, if only. People don't think that way. If the New Testament tells us anything, it's that all of the good things that God did for his people in the Old Testament pale in comparison to what he does for his people in the New Covenant. Listen to the way that even this, 32, 1 and 2, this angelic vision, listen to the way that, that we can track this through Scripture, all right? So we could go from Genesis 32, we could skip ahead, and we could look at Psalm 34, 7, where David is reflecting on a time when he feared he was going to lose his life, but God saved him and delivered him. And David says in Psalm 34, 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. David says that as if that's just a general known fact. This is what God does. When his people are in trouble, he has his angel camped out with them so that no harm gets to them. We skip a little bit further in the Psalms and we read in Psalm 91, verses 10 through 12. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent, for he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Say, Merritt, that's all fine and good. But this is a lot of Old Testament stuff, and we're more of a New Testament kind of people. All right? What, what has he done for us lately? I'm glad you asked. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1. 
Hebrews chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, last verses in the chapter. But to which of the angels has he, that is the Father, has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they, are, are they, are, aren't angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? That's you if you're in Christ. Now, let me, let me pause here just for a minute and, and just unpack one, one aspect of this statement. One of the questions that comes up in verse 14, aren't these angels, aren't they, and of course, it's a rhetorical question, well, of course they are, aren't they ministering spirits sent out to serve, to aid those who will inherit salvation? Here's the question. What does the author mean when he says, those who will inherit salvation. It could mean, it could mean that God sends his angels to his people who are moving toward their inheritance that God has reserved for them in his presence. So once we enter into faith with Christ and in union with the Father, his angels minister, serve, enable us to make it to the end where we finally get a whole and complete salvation. That could be one thing. It also could mean that God sends his angels out to serve those who will inherit salvation in the sense that he sends them out to his people before they are even his people. Do you, do you get that? In other words, because God knows you by name, because God has bought you, before you even have the sense to turn to him, he has already turned to you and has already put at your disposal, even though you don't know how to use it and you don't know how to take advantage of it, he has put at your disposal angels who are going to see to it, one, that you are brought into salvation with Christ, that you are not kept from Christ, by any enemy or any opposition, and that once you have come to Christ, there is nothing that is going to prevent you. No trial, no test, no tribulation, no opponent, no enemy that is going to keep you from reaching your determined end. It doesn't matter if you don't see it, we're told it. When Jacob has his, when his eyes are open, when he's given the ability to see what is unseen, right? Jacob is being given the ability to see something that already existed. Jacob's, Jacob's seeing, his gift of sight did not bring the angels into existence. It did not establish the camp. Rather, his ability to see, his eyes being open, merely enabled him to see what God had already done and what he had already provided. Now, I know, I know, I know that it would be nice to have a vision like that every once in a while. For whatever reason, God in his wisdom has determined that that is not the way that he typically works. God, in his wisdom, has determined that we see what can't be seen by what we hear. We don't see the unseen with the natural eye. We hear the unseen with God's word spoken to us, which means that even though you may not get a vision like Jacob got, because God has said, my angels, Hebrews 1, are sent out to render service and aid to those who will inherit salvation. That means that even if you never see one of those angels or a horde of those angels, they are nevertheless working according to the will of your Father for your good and your protection. 
You can see it with the eyes of faith and you can bank on it. God is with you. God is with me. God is with his people in ways that we cannot even begin to fathom. There is no time in our life when God is not with us for our good. Part of the challenge then that comes our way when life is difficult is recognizing that all of these challenges of life, the pressure that we feel, those things are the things that seem most real. Those are the things that seem most urgent. Those are the things that dominate my thinking, my imagination. And part of the challenge that comes as a child of God is to say, I can't look on the things that are seen. I have to look to the things that are unseen. I have to go to God's word. I have to listen to what he has declared. I have to preach to myself to stop looking at those things and to look with the eyes of faith at the reality that God has brought into existence for me and for his people. And I walk in faith believing that every word that God has spoken is true, whether I understand it, whether I comprehend it, and whether or not I can predict how this outcome is going to be. It is true and he is with me. You enter into the exam room to have those tests run. You may be the only one in that room as that machine whirs and hums. But you know what? You're not alone. You sit in the doctor's office. He comes and he brings you the results of your test. It's you and the doctor. Actually, there's more than two people sitting in there. It is not just you and the doctor. You lose a family member, you lose a loved one, you lose them unexpectedly. God does not have to wake himself up. He does not have to rouse himself into action. He was already there with you before you even knew that you needed him. And he will remain with you through all of your days until you are finally brought into his presence perfectly right that's that's part of what we sang now all of a sudden the line has escaped me but the idea that there's coming a time when prayer will give way to praise right that's going to be a good day right when I don't have to pray because I'm there I'm present there's coming a day when faith will become sight I don't have to believe, I will know. But in the meantime, God says, I give you my word so that you can know that I am with you wherever you go. I am protecting you, I am watching over you, no matter what kind of hostility or challenge you may face, it does not escape my notice, and nothing but nothing but nothing can touch you without going through me. So we need to know God's presence. Number two, we need to pray God's promises. Go back to Genesis chapter 32. Jacob is on his way. He sends messengers ahead to let Esau know that he's returning back home. Messengers come back and they say, hey, wouldn't you know it, Jacob? Esau is actually coming to see you with 400 men. Now, if the last time that you saw or heard anything from your brother, he was swearing that he would not rest until he slit your throat, what do you think is about to happen when you hear that your brother is coming with 400 men? Nothing good. So Jacob hears 
And one of the things that he does instantly, he separates the group that he has, thinking if Esau does get here and we're unprepared, if we separate into two groups, he'll have to choose one. He may knock out one group, but hopefully I'll get the other half that'll survive. He doesn't feel like he's any match for what Esau may bring his way. But then again, as we said earlier, in one of the best efforts and actions that Jacob has in the Genesis storyline, we come to verses 9 through 12, where he prays. You ever notice how much better your prayers are when you're desperate? You ever notice how much more fervently you pray when you recognize that you're in a heap load of trouble? That's technical lingo. That means you're in a bad place. I wonder if sometimes, this is just a side note, I wonder if sometimes God doesn't allow these things to happen because we need to exercise our prayer muscles. Right? So the Lord looks at me and says, you know, that merit, he's one of mine. I, I, I bought him, I paid for him. But man, that kid has got to grow up. He's got to mature. He doesn't pray anywhere near as often as what he should. Okay, let's get him praying. So he sends a person, or he sends a situation, or he sends a difficulty. And the spiritual muscles begin to exercise and get strengthened. Even that is for my good. But again, side note, back to Jacob's prayer. There are a number of things that we could say about Jacob's prayer here, but for the sake of time, let me just... Let me just draw your attention to, to three elements, all right? We, you could take note of the fact that Jacob identifies the Lord as this covenant-keeping God. He acknowledges the fact that all of the good things that the Lord has done for him has been undeserved, on and on and on. For us, though, let me try to encourage you and also challenge you to imitate Jacob's prayer in this way. When Jacob prays, you can you can see in the prayer these three parts, among other parts, but three parts that we're going to key in on, which is that he focuses on a command, what God has said, then his obedience to the command comes with the request, and then he ends it with a reminder of God's promise. So, Command, obedient response, promise. Look at, look at the way it happens. Verse 9, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives and I will prosper you. There's the command. Back earlier, a chapter or two, God comes to Jacob in 31.3 and says, Jacob, return to your land. Go back home. Leave Laban. So this is Jacob saying at the front of his prayer, okay, Lord, you told me to leave Laban and to go back home. You told me to do something that you knew would put me in potential conflict with Esau. You said, go back home. Verse 11, the request then... Because being obedient to your command has put me in danger, now verse 11, so deliver me. Jacob, you go home? Okay, I'll go home. But this is going to be dangerous, so if I'm going to be obedient, and I am being obedient, I need you to deliver me from the danger that I'm about to encounter. You see that? So you said go, I went, now you need to step in and save me. And then third, down in verse 12, for you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. You told me to go, I'm being obedient. 
And in obedience, I'm asking that you would save me and deliver me so that I can obey your word. And by the way, don't forget that you also said that you were going to make me numerous. The implication is, therefore, you can't let Esau wipe us out. Otherwise, you're not being true to your word. Good prayer, Jacob. Good prayer. One of the things that I would encourage you to do as you're going through your Christian life, and especially, especially when your walk with the Lord is bringing you into conflict, is bringing you into trouble, into difficulty, is to look and examine and say, okay, what is it that God has called me to do in this situation? What is his command? Okay, this is what God commands me to do in this particular situation. Therefore, I'm going to do it, and as I'm doing it, as I'm being obedient to what you have said, I'm going to ask you to give me the ability to do it, preserve me, keep me, because... Look at all these promises that you've given me, you've guaranteed. Let me show you some ways that this shows up in Scripture or ways that you can see this pattern. Turn to Acts chapter 4, verses 29 through 31. Peter and John have been arrested, they've been threatened, don't preach Christ anymore. They return, gather with another group of believers, and they say this in their prayer in Acts 4.29, And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hands to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. So God says to Peter and John and the rest of the disciples, you go be my witnesses. You preach the gospel to all the nations of the earth. And in being obedient to that command, they are threatened. Okay, Lord. We are under threat because we're being obedient to you. Therefore, take note of their threats. Listen to what they're saying. Listen to what they're planning to do to us and intervene on our behalf so that we can continue to be obedient and preach the word. And God loves to give what his people ask for when they're asking for him to give what he already wants to give. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Pick up at verse 5. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I forsake you, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? So the command is, don't you be overly concerned with money. Why is he saying that to this group in Hebrews. Well, for a group who's under pressure, who he said in chapter 10, has already suffered the seizure and loss of property because of their faith in Christ, the writer knows that one of the things that we are tempted to do is to find security in finances, in property, in real estate. 
don't do that if it takes you away from your confidence in the Lord. So the command is, you don't be overly concerned. Don't have your heart set on riches. Okay, Lord, that's the command that you've given me, and I'm going to do it. So what does it look like for me to obey that command? It may look like letting go of some money. It may look like turning down a promotion because that would not be good for my spiritual growth and development or it would not be good for my family. It means that I will make less money rather than more money. It may mean that if cultural trends continue, I could actually end up losing a job because of my relationship with Christ. So God commands, don't you have your heart set on money. Okay, Lord, I'm not going to set my heart on money, but you got to know that this puts me in a very awkward, difficult, insecure situation. But you have said, promised, I will never leave you or forsake you. You got to let me know that that promise is true. Do you see how that works? Jacob does the same thing. You told me to go and I'm going, but I need help. And I need help because without your help, your promises are going to fall flat. God is perfectly happy for his children to talk to him that way. First John 5, verses 14 through 15 says, This is the confidence that we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. One of the reasons that we may find it difficult to pray in certain situations is because we don't know, as we should, what God's will is. We don't know what God has already revealed, what he has already commanded, what he has already said. And because I don't know what it is that God is commanding me to do, I don't know the direction that he has charted for me, I flail around throwing up all these half-hearted, empty, half-baked prayers, hoping that something sticks. Whereas John says... Here is the kind of confidence and assurance that you can have. If you know what God's will is, and he has told you what his will is, you find it here, you find God's will, and you pray that, and you ask God to do what he wants to do, and you can know with 100% certainty that because you're asking according to his will, he's going to give it to you. But it gets even better than that. Because it's not just us who prays. Hebrews 7 says that Jesus, as our high priest, is able to save to the uttermost. Able to save to the nth degree. Because he always lives to intercede, to pray for his people. So here's, here's what this means. That means that when you find yourself in danger or in difficulty or in a test or trial, and you come and say, I don't know that I've got the kind of clarity to pray something along the lines of what Jacob prayed. What, what is God commanding me to do here? What is it that I need help with? What are the promises that fit with this situation? You don't know what it is. You are flailing around. You're hoping that you find something that will stick. Here's the encouragement to you. Even while you are flailing around in your half-hearted or weak or mixed-up, misguided prayer, that in and of itself, your prayer is not determinative on whether or not God gives you what you need. You know why? Because Jesus is praying for you. How many times, how many times 
eternity will tell. How many times must the father sit and listen to the cries of this pitiful of this pitiful man only to hear his son say, I know he thinks that's what he needs. That's not actually what he needs most. Give him this, Father. You promised, Father, that through me, by the Spirit, you would make this available to him. He doesn't know that, but I do. Give it to him. You commanded him, Father, to walk by the Spirit so that he would not fulfill the desires of the flesh. This is what he needs in order to do that. Give it to him so that he can be sanctified. So as much as we want to encourage ourselves and we want to stir ourselves to pray God's word back to him, we want to pray in line with what God has already revealed, taking firm grasp of his promises, saying, I know that this is going to be given because you have said, even when you find yourself in a situation where you don't know what to pray, God is still with you and he is still answering the prayer of your faithful and merciful high priest. And you will get everything that you need to make it through your danger, your snare, your trial, your pit. Last point, and I'm going to do this very quickly. So if in times of danger, or if when we're threatened, if when we're facing test or trial... We can see the way that God works and moves on behalf of Jacob, that he makes his presence known, that we can find confidence in the fact that he never leaves his people. Whether we see it, whether we feel it, whether we sense it or not, makes no difference. He's still there. Because we can be confident that when we pray according to his will, when we're walking in obedience with him, that God delights to give us what we need to be able to make it through our time of testing or trial, whether that's deliverance, whether it's endurance, whatever it is. Because of all those things, knowing the presence of God, praying the promises of God, there ought to be then a settled confidence that we then can begin to practice what it is that we're praying. Here's where I think Jacob falls short. He was doing so well, so well. What does Jacob do after he finishes praying in verses 9 through 12. What does he do in verse 13? Does he lay back and say, ah, okay, now I know I have nothing to worry about. No, he, he sets himself to work frantically saying, how am I going to buy Esau off? What can I give him that will make him not want to kill me? I know I'll give him hundreds and hundreds of animals. I'll buy him off. Does that sound like someone who is resting in the presence of God, who is resting in the promised deliverance that God has said he would provide? Does it look, does it sound like Jacob is resting in that? No. As a matter of fact, if you go to towards the end of the passage that we had, look down at verses 20 and 21. In the, in the Hebrew, the word faith shows up five times in two verses. Let me, try to, let me try to read to you in a very stiff way what 32, 20, and 21 would sound like if you took note of all the times that the word faith appears. So in verse 20... Jacob says, for, for Jacob said, I will appease him, or I will cover his face, is the literal phrasing. In other words, I'll cover his face with something good so that he doesn't look on me with anger. I will cover his face with the present that goes 
ahead of my face. Then afterward, I will see his face. Perhaps he will raise my face. Perhaps he will accept me. He will look on me favorably. So the present passed on before his face while he himself spent the night in the camp. It's a very odd, odd turn of phrase and expression. I think one of the things that's being communicated here is that even though Jacob knows because of the vision that he had that God is with him, even though Jacob has given a model prayer that should reassure him that God will protect and deliver him, Jacob is still terrified to meet his brother face to face. And this is where we'll pick up on next week because Jacob doesn't even know the half of it. The Lord must smile and say, Jacob, you're so concerned about meeting your brother face to face. You don't even know that you're about to meet me face to face. You want something to be frightened about? I'll give you something to be frightened about. But in meeting God face to face, which we'll look at next week, Jacob is transformed in a significant way that marks a critical dividing point in all that happened before in Jacob's life to all that's going to happen afterwards. So we want to end saying, no matter where you happen to find yourself, no matter where we are as God's people, we are weak, easily distracted, misguided, frantic, panicky people. But God is faithful. God is with us. God is making sure that all of the promises that he has spoken are being fulfilled now and in the future. And even if we do not rest in his presence, in his protection, in his promises the way that we ought to, it still doesn't take away from the fact that God is going to remain true to himself. Let's pray. Father, how easily we take our eyes off of you and set it on the trouble in front of us. We forfeit, we lose out on so much confidence and security we could have when we take our eyes off of ourselves, when we take our eyes off of the world around us, and when we set our eyes and our mind on the things above. But Father, we thank you and we praise you that even with our weaknesses, even in our doubts, even in our disobedience and our wavering, that you remain faithful to us. And because of your faithfulness, we can be confident that we will never lose you. You will never allow one of us to be snatched out of your hand. All things must work together for our good. Father, would you cultivate here at Edgewood a body of believers who are utterly convinced that no matter what this life brings our way, that we know we are going to walk through mountaintops, valleys, in your shadow, in your presence. That we know that every good word that you have spoken will be brought to perfect fulfillment. Help us to trust you and to follow you in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, by the power of your spirit. We pray this in your name. Amen.